Welcome to episode 78 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and with me today I have regular panelists Katie Grubbs and Marie Halls. Hi, Katie and Marie. Hi. As we do at the beginning of every show, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that might be new to our program. You go first, Katie. Hi, I'm Katie Grubbs. I live in Houston, Texas, where I'm an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Um, Lately, I've been designing a lot of new online material, which has been uh, really interesting. I also am a Bible study teacher, and um, with my husband, David Grubbs, of the CHP, we have three children and uh, and one more uh, child on the way, so our house is really noisy and busy, but it's also fun. Yay! really excited about your new little one yeah um and i'm marie haas um i'm living currently in connecticut with my husband jonathan and i'm in the mdiv program at yale divinity school and as part of the program i'm working toward a certificate in women's gender and sexuality studies um and i'm excited to talk about the woman's bible thanks marie uh i'm victoria reynolds farmer I live in Minnetonka, Minnesota with my husband, Michael, of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and our two cats, Smerjikov and Dorothy Parker, who are thankfully not in the room with me right now. And uh, I'm Senior Manager of Audience Development at Public Radio International, uh, which means I write a lot of audience surveys, and also I read a lot of emails from people who are angry about fake news and words that they think were pronounced incorrectly on the radio. So that, <laughs> that's fun times. <laughs> uh, and as Marie said, today we're going to talk about Elizabeth Cady Stanton's Woman's Bible. Uh, but before we do that, uh, we'd like to thank our new fans on our Facebook page. Uh, as we've said the past few episodes, we'd like to get to 500 fans. We're at 497. So uh, please share the page with your friends. Um, if you haven't, if you listen to the show and haven't liked us on Facebook yet, please do that. But we do want to give a quick thank you and a shout out to uh, some people who have liked us recently. So thanks to Michaela, Naomi, Diane, Evelyn, Josh, Zoe, Sarah, Jack, Megan, Jessica, Lauren, Brendan, Larry, and Sarah. Thanks, everybody. We appreciate uh, your comments, your likes, your thoughts on our posts and our episodes. We love our community, so uh, please keep sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, Now that that's done, let's get into today's subject, uh, which, as I said, is the Woman's Bible. Um, associated primarily with Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And first I just wanted to say a little bit of background on why we decided to do an episode on this book. 
So a few months ago, I don't even remember when we recorded this, um, but a few months ago we did an episode on the Sheologians podcast and tried to uh, respond to that a little bit. And um, it was my job to respond to their episode on first wave feminism. Uh, And while they mentioned Stanton and mentioned her being a Christian, um, I felt like there was a real missed opportunity there because they didn't really get into um, the kind of work she does in the woman's Bible. So I thought we should do an episode on that. And now we are. So what did you guys know about the woman's Bible as a text or Stanton as a feminist figure uh, before you prepped for this episode? Marie, why don't you get us started? Well, actually, Victoria, it was you that introduced me to the Woman's Bible because I first heard of it when we were doing um, episode 2.1, I think, on first wave feminism. Um, And so that was really the first time I'd heard um, much about it. And I didn't realize then, actually, that it was uh, like her attitude towards the Bible isn't just this one of recovery and saying, like, actually, the Bible is great towards women, because I sort of thought, oh, that's what the woman's Bible must be when I first heard of it. But it's really more of this deep hermeneutics of suspicion. So I was kind of surprised by that in um, preparing for this episode. Um, I shouldn't have made those assumptions about about uh, this first wave uh, 19th century feminism. Katie, how about you? Um, Yeah, this is not something I was really familiar with um, before preparing for this episode. Um, I mean, obviously, I know a bit about Stanton, and I had heard of the Woman's Bible, but um, had never really delved into it, um, in part because I've just never, in all my time in college and graduate school, I never actually had the opportunity to take uh, a feminist theory course or anything like that, and so it was never assigned, and it wasn't something that... um, I knew enough about um, or had an impetus, I guess, to, to seek out and really dig into. And like Marie said, I think I probably had different expectations before opening the book about what I was going to find. Um, in particular, I, I was interested in the choices that um, the writers made about which uh, female uh, Bible characters they chose to um, to valorize and which they didn't. That was really interesting to me. So this was this was kind of all new and, and very intriguing. Great. Well, I'm I'm glad we. Uh, it sounds like we learned some things. Uh, hopefully, we can we can communicate those things well. Um, I also had not read the woman's Bible before prepping this episode. Um, I had read like teeny tiny excerpts, and I knew um, some of the kind of historical drama around its composition, um, of, of which there is a lot. Um, my familiarity with Stanton went deeper than that, even though I hadn't gotten deep into this text. Um, I had read her letters uh, to and from Susan B. Anthony and and read a lot about their friendship, um, which is really fascinating given that one of them, you know, is is this very religious person um, who uh, stays at home and has a, a sort of more traditional life. One of them, um, you know, is... is closer to what we would call a, a career woman and prioritizes the other thing and they sort of um, help balance each other out in that way and have a, a really fascinating relationship. Um, and also I had read a number of Stanton's speeches, including um, the Declaration of Rights and Sentiments, which is, of course, from um, the famous uh, Seneca Falls Convention. 
but I, I really did learn a lot digging into this text. Um, and, and the thing that was really the most fascinating to me, I think, is uh, the material in the preface and the introduction where Stanton lays out why this book looks the way it does. Uh, so I'm, I'm just going to jump uh, into that now and then, uh, and then we can chat about your thoughts about the composition a little bit. So Stanton tells us um, that there's a sort of multifocal purpose with the book that they both want to um, revise places that uh, get women wrong, that include them, but uh, but sort of read them incorrectly, um, or read them not charitably enough because the writing is done by men, and also places where women are, she says, made prominent by exclusion, where they should be talked about, but they don't. Um, and then she goes on to say that um, how they deal with the Bible passages are sort of in three ways. One, they translate, and she makes a point to say that uh, they picked women who are gifted Greek and Hebrew scholars to do the translation, so there's some, some expertise there. Second, um, there are people devoted to biblical history, old manuscripts, new versions, and the latest theories. So, um, background information and also uh, different translations of the Bible, they know about those things. And then there's commentary done by committee. And the most interesting thing about that commentary is all the women uh, involved uh, have adopted the following plan, Stanton says, which may be suggestive to new members of the committee. Each person purchased two Bibles, ran through them from Genesis to Revelation, marking all the texts that concerned women. The passages were cut out and pasted in a blank book, and the commentaries then written underneath. Uh, so this literal cut-and-paste method seems pretty incredible, pretty radical to me. They're literally taking pieces out of the Bible and putting them in a different textual frame and adding their own text. Um, what did you guys think about that methodology? Do you find it as radical as I do? Yeah, um, yeah, I, it was that was hard. And in part, that's because I'm the kind of person who I get weird about like too much writing in my Bible. So I acknowledge that that's partially just a, a personal reaction. But it, it made me think a lot of Jefferson. Um, in the Jefferson Bible and the idea yes. of, you know, yes, yeah, <laughs> cutting it apart, you know, for the bits that you prefer. Um, on the one hand, I can appreciate the orderliness of this method, that they're all following the same method. Um, but yeah, it, it, it seemed, it did, it seemed very radical. And reading it, 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 it makes reading it a little bit hard too, because um, just the idea, you know, I'm reading, I'm reading down the line, these different Bible verses. And sometimes I would have to, I would get pulled up short and I would have to go back because I wouldn't be looking at the numbers, just the words and would, would not realize that there'd been a skip of something like 10 verses. It might be the same chapter, but there'd been a skip of, of, you know, verses because those verses didn't mention women. And so it made it a little bit difficult to read too. I, I think that that's pretty liberating too, though, the sort of forcing us to, to adopt a new context, because um, it does, it makes you think about where women are absent, or at least it, it did for me. Um, I don't know, what do you think, Marie? No, yeah, that was, that 
thinking about where women are absent, that was something that I appreciated in the preface and the discussion of how like the material form of the commentary kind of plays into its feminist critique, because in point one in the preface, um, she describes how all of the passages that talk about women in some way would only make like one tenth of the scriptures and all of the commentary on these passages with the passages can be fit into about 400 duodecimo pages, which should be, which is a pretty small format. So it's like this, the, the, just focusing on these passages and like the shortness of these passages in relation to the entire Bible is kind of a critique of the Bible being like, well, women just aren't here much, you know? Uh, I did wonder too. Oh, sorry. Just that it's interesting. She doesn't mention any particular view they might have taken towards passages that appear to be speaking to men and women. That was interesting to me too. She talked a lot about the, you know, how women are taking up so little space, but there seem to be so many places in scripture that seem to be speaking to men and women, but there, she didn't really talk about that if they decided, you know, to discard those wholesale as well because they also included men. I'm assuming that's why, and that it was just a purely woman focused. But that was interesting to me too. That was one of the first questions I had when reading: is what about the passages that appear to be um, addressed to men and women? Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. Um, I mean, I th- I think I don't want to speak for the committee, but I I think part of that might be um, she talks about the sort of urgency of um, of talking about absence first. So I, I think that might be part of it. But you, that is a, a really good question because um, one of the things it does seem like the committee is trying to do is talk about um, sort of Christianity as a group of people, as a community that should be mutual and supportive. Um, so some of those passages that passages that you're referring to um, do seem like they, they fit into that hermeneutic, at least. That makes sense. So, um, what we're going to do for this episode, because even though the book um, is short in that it does not cover the entire Bible, um, it is much too long for us to cover in serious depth in a single episode. So what we've decided to do is each focus on one commentary passage that we found particularly um, interesting or provocative. Um, I'm going to go first because I picked Genesis. Uh, I figured we had to at least talk about some of Genesis um, since... Uh, Eve is is pretty uh, pretty necessary to cover for Christian feminism, um, at, at least uh, to some degree. And I will say, um, I planned initially to talk about Genesis 1 through 3 um, so that I could cover the creation and the temptation, um, but with all three of us talking, I do not think that there's going to be enough time for that, so I'm just going to talk about the first two chapters and the creation. Um, that might be a bad idea. Maybe we'll um, do a, a follow-up episode eventually. Um, but just in the service of time, um, only only creation accounts. And um, the two women who comment on Genesis from the committee are uh, Stanton herself and Lily Devereaux Blake. So... Stanton has the first section and says that 
the most important thing here when you're talking about um, the woman's Bible version of Genesis 1 and 2 is that women should note that there are two different accounts of creation. Um, biblical scholars and theologians uh, call these the E and J texts, the Elohim and Yahwehist texts because of the different ways that those texts refer to God. Um, the most important thing for the committee writing the woman's Bible is um, the order of creation is different. There's difference in the mutuality of man and woman and how they relate to each other in these two texts and um, what God tells Adam and Eve to do and not do are portrayed uh, slightly differently. So three, three sets of differences there. Stanton and Blake point out that in the e-text, that is uh, Genesis 1, 26, and 27's uh, account of creation, man and woman are created together and given dominion over the earth at the same time. Um, that's that really famous male and female he created them verse that I'm sure we all know. And that it's different in the J text in Genesis 2, 22 to 25. And the big difference is um, that Adam and the animals are created first. God tries to find uh, a suitable mate for Adam with the animals, but that doesn't work. Um, they're, they're not like him. And then Eve is created from Adam's rib. Um, when you guys were taught the creation story when you were children, I'm, I'm curious to know, which of these versions did you sort of think of as what happened when you were kids? Uh, yeah, I, I think um, mostly I was taught like the sequential one um, as the main, the main version, and then uh, Eve's creation would sort of be assumed to just follow after all of the sequential creation and uh, sort of smoothing over the differences between the two the two chapters <laughs> was the impression I got. I feel like I was kind of taught a combination a combo view of the two. Um, the kind of impression I always got growing up is that um, it's it's not two different stories, but it's two different versions of the same story in which the first version, the E version, is a kind of overview or summing up, you know, this is, here's the big sweep, right? This day was this, this day was this, this day was this, and then was kind of presented with the other version as a kind of more zoomed in specific look um, at exactly what happened in male and female he created them, like... So that the first version where it says that is kind of giving a more general, and then he created people. And then the second um, version is giving more detail about that. So that it wasn't presented as two different versions, um, but just as a kind of um, one pass through that gives the whole sweep of all of it. Um, and then a second pass that gives more detail about how the people were made. That's kind of how I was taught it growing up. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty much what I got, um, too, that sort of they're different, but that doesn't mean that they're both not true. Um, and, and I also definitely got um, 
and people will try to convince you that the fact that there are differences means um, that that this is not real so so be on guard for that and um, when I was researching for this episode I, I wanted to try to find um, some some sort of more traditional readings to put next to the Stanton just so I could get um, get those multiple contexts so I looked at um, the Gospel Coalition's um, Genesis overview and I also looked at answers in Genesis and both of those places definitely echoed the message I heard when I was a kid that the most important thing about these differences is that you not let someone try to trip you up with them and um, and the sort of the allegory versus real history um, debate being very important um, which I thought was really interesting because Stanton out and out says um, this history versus allegory debate is kind of a smokescreen um, that doesn't really matter God is God and ordained this so it doesn't matter if people think it's literal history or just an allegory God is still God um, so I, I found that interesting that the kind of the view that she says is um, is kind of clouding our judgment in the 19th century does still that that debate is is still going on I thought that was um, an interesting thing that's really interesting too because I feel like it it, it's, it makes me wonder what happened because <laughs> I very much grew up in a in an environment that was you know would have had those more conservative views and to some degree I'm still in an environment like that today but I never even encountered the I, I never even encountered that like you said that that tension of now watch out because people are going to tell you these are two different stories that I, I never encountered that and so it's interesting now you know but clearly it's there if you go looking for it because you did so that's that's so interesting that I wonder how much of that leeriness of people trying to say it's two different stories and trying to trip people up I wonder how much of that is happening in the minds or the lives of the kind of people who write you know the articles about that stuff and I want like I wonder how much that's occurring in the lives of kind of regular people I guess on the ground who aren't apologists or you know it's, it's interesting because um, that's not something I'd encountered before and so it's kind of funny to encounter it for the first time you know in uh, to, to encounter it for the first time now <laughs> so far into my life that's really interesting. Oh, I definitely heard that growing up, <laughs> like Victoria, yeah. And another thing that I think is interesting is um, those sources, the the answers in Genesis and the Gospel Coalition source, um, don't mention the creation order difference. Don't mention the sort of woman-centered stuff that that Stanton tries to to foreground. So I I definitely think she's onto something in that you know, this many decades later, the the same um, the same sort of narratives without counter narrative still seem to be uh, at play. Um, I want to mention one or two more things about um, her interpretation of um, particularly the the second uh, the second chapter um, where Eve is is created later. Um, Stanton references a common argument that says um, because man was created first he he is meant to have dominion over woman um, and and she uh, 
she lets loose a, a, a pretty sick burn. So I, so I want to um, I want to quote that. Accepting the view that man was prior in creation, some scriptural writers say that as the woman was of the man, therefore her position should be one of subjection. Granted, then, as the historical fact is reversed in our day, and the man is now of the woman, shall his place be one of subjection? The equal position declared in the first account, the first um, chapter of Genesis, must prove more satisfactory to both sexes, created alike in the image of God, the heavenly mother and father. So I think uh, that joke is pretty hilarious. The idea that like, well, now women create men because we give birth. So what does that mean? Yeah, that was one of the things that I I was like delightfully surprised to find in reading Stanton uh, for this episode that she's just so like snarky. <laughs> I love it. You know? Right? She's super funny. I love too that she somewhere in there she said too she just pointed out that the animals were created before Adam. So if that's the way we're going to go, then does that mean that they are superior to him because, you know, they were created first? I thought that was funny too. Right. And one last thing and then I'll uh I'll I'll let the next person go. Um but I wanted to mention their reading um of verse 24. Uh therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave cleave unto his wife. Um you know this sort of marriage makes independent families um idea that certainly we still um hold up. They, the committee notes, nothing is said of the headship of man, but he is commanded to make her the head of the household and the home. So not, uh, you know, man and wife shall cleave to each other, but a man shall leave his family and cleave unto his wife. Um, and the, the interpretation ends, uh, he is commanded to make her head of the household the home, a rule followed for centuries under the matriarchate. So they're like making an argument for matriarchal rule if we're going to read this as uh, as a historical edict for how to structure families. I had never seen that taken that far before. Uh, I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting, even if it's not uh, an interpretation I would go straight to. No, yeah, and I think it, it's it's uh, interesting as the strategy for like undermining the other historical ways um, of reading the Bible that would then be more against women and towards a patriarchy because they're like, oh well, you can do it this other way too with equal validity. So, yeah. All right. So uh, since we've got more places to go, I will uh, I will cede the floor. Uh, Katie, tell us what passage you chose to talk about and why. Um, I went to Esther, um, and in part uh, because I've been I've been reading through um, a lot of different stories because I'm at the moment I'm teaching a class at church um, called Forgotten Women of the Old Testament, and so um, we're kind of looking at the women who don't get pretty flower Bible study books made about them. So there's no there's no Ruth, there's no Esther, um, or anything like that. Um, we're talking about like tomorrow we're, I'm teaching about jail. So that's going to be awesome. Um, but, uh, the, uh, but, um, to, as part of my research for that class, I've been looking at, um, other, you know, other different secondary sources about women in the Bible. And I noticed something really interesting in some of the stuff I was reading about Vashti, 
um, before we ever started preparing for this episode. And that made me think, okay, I wonder what Stanton says about her. Um, and so that's why I chose to, to look at this. And I think this is enormously interesting. So um, in the section about, um, let me find it here, sorry. Um, in the discussion of Esther, I really, really loved the way that, um, and I'm not sure, Victoria, I don't know. My text doesn't tell me who's who's commentating on Esther. I don't know if I was assuming it's just Stanton. Do you know? Is it? Is there anybody else in there? I'll uh, I'll find it. You keep talking. Okay. Um. So, I I love the way that she talked about um really about Vashti and Esther, but particularly Vashti because just background and full disclosure because I come out of the complementarian world. Um, complementarians have really interesting ideas about Esther. Um, among other things, I've absolutely seen, um, complementarians try to suggest that Esther's actions were actually, um, actually actual actions of deference to her kingly husband and not boldness, which seems just stupid. Um, she could have been put to death for boldly going to talk to the king when she hadn't been summoned, but they decided that somehow her womanly spirit in doing this means that she's still totally submissive, you guys. So that's like a whole other thing. Um, but I've seen uh, kind of modern leaning patriarchal complementarian sources um, be very down on Vashti in Esther as an undutiful wife, right? Her husband says, come here and show everyone you're beautiful. And she says, no. <laughs> and so that's kind of one of the, that's one of the views of her that I'd seen. Um, what Stanton says about her, I think is fantastic. Um, she identifies her basically as a pioneer. Um, you know, background for listeners, um, just a reminder, if you've read Esther, if you haven't read Esther, the king's been drunk for seven days with his men, princes and things. And he says at the end of this, he commands his wife, Vashi, to come before them in her crown and display herself in her beauty. Um, I've seen some commentators suggest that this display herself in her beauty means that she would have he was wanting her to come naked. That doesn't have to be true, I think, to make this degrading. Um, and Vashi refuses to come. And. Um, this is what Stanton says about her, among other things. Um, can, can I yeah. jump in real fast? Go ahead. Um, the, the Esther part is done by Stanton and, uh, Lucinda B. Chandler. Awesome. Okay. Thank you for that. Yeah. I, I ordered a printed text and it doesn't, it doesn't say I'm not, I've not been actually super happy with this, this one that I picked. Um, so she, uh, she kind of recounts the story, gives a biblical text and um, for one, she compares Vashti to other other women in the Old Testament. She says, we have some grand types of women presented for our admiration in the Bible. Deborah for her courage and military prowess. Hulda for her learning, prophetic insight and statesmanship. Um, Esther, who ruled as well as reigned. And Vashti, who scorned uh, the apostles' command, wives obey your husbands. She refused the king's orders to grace with her presence, his reveling court. And she says further down... Um, Vashti refused to come at the king's command, an unprecedented act of both wife and queen. Probably Vashti had had previous knowledge of the condition of the king when his heart was merry with wine and when the physical man was under the effects of seven days conviviality. She had a higher idea of womanly dignity than placing herself on exhibition as one of the king's possessions, which it pleased him to present to his assembled princes. Vashti is conspicuous as the first woman recorded whose self-respect and courage enabled her to act contrary to the will of her husband. She was the first woman who dared. And my text has scare quotes around woman who dared. Um, she also says lower down that Vashti was the prototype of the higher unfoldment of woman beyond her time 
and a sublime representative of self-centered womanhood, which she's not meaning self-centered in a, a negative way. Sometimes we do now. Um, she says, rising to the heights of self-consciousness and out of self-respect, she takes her soul into her own keeping. And I, I really, really liked that because so often when we talk about Esther, the focus is on Esther and if and, and her kind of bravery and the way that she helped to save her people. And if Fashti's mentioned at all, it's either in a way that's just she's part of Esther's story or in some kind of patriarchal complementarian circles, it's negative. The focus on her is negative. I really, really liked um, that Stanton and Chandler are looking at her as something unusual and different and that the action and, and seeing the truth, which is that the action that she's taking is requiring, you know, also absolute bravery to refuse that order. Um, you know, if this is a king who can order that all the beautiful women be brought to him when he decides to replace her, then that means that obviously she's not even the only woman in his palace. She knows how easily she could be replaced. And yet she still says, I'm not going to do this. This is this is an affront to my dignity. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting about this, too, is that I'm starting to see in my reading for for the, my Old Testament class that even more kind of conservative what we would now call complementarian ideas about some of these Bible women um, haven't always been present, even in that community. Um, so that there's these modern kind of complementary negative ideas about Vashti. Um, but one of the books I'm looking at um, for my Sunday school class, because uh, Alexis Neal, who's also on our podcast, told me that, um, you know, it was it was an interesting exploration of women of the Bible is Abraham Kuyper's books, Women of the Old Testament and Women of the New Testament. And Kuyper's writing actually probably writing this around the same time of, as the woman's Bible, right? He's writing in the um, late 19th century um, and totally different than Stanton, right? Very conservative, very reformed, um, you know, but he takes a similar view of Vashti and he actually talks about her as much more, uh, as a much better woman than Esther, which is really interesting. Um, but he wow. also... I know, right? Oh, he's super down on Esther. It's super interesting. Um, he talks a lot about Esther and about how she's not really that great. He says something like um, that. Oh, let me find it. Um, he basically says she does not impress us. <laughs> something about Esther. I, I forget how he says it about Esther, but it's super dismissive. What he says about Va? Go ahead. Do, do you think is so? Is this anti-Semitism? Do you think? May maybe. But to me, it seems more um, one of the things he gets down on Esther for is he talks about how um, that uh, let me let me find it. She says that first he talks about her hesitation, um, that she has to be convinced to do this, that um, when she finally decides to act, Mordecai has said, don't think that you're not going to be don't think that you'll be spared to, you know. Um, so he almost sees it as, as self-interest. He also talks about how marrying an, uh, a, a king of a different nation is a violation of statutes and, and the law. And like, I mean, it's really interesting. He also see, sees her as being kind of bloodthirsty because she seeks more time or she she seeks um, to get her people the chance to kill more of their enemies. It's it's really it's really interesting. Um, but one of the things that, but he, the way he talks about Vashi is very similar to the way Stanton talks about her. He says she's one of the nobler women of humanity, um, that no woman who possessed a particle of feminine pride could have obeyed that summons. 
Um, and he talks about her feminine honesty. pride. That's an interesting phrase. I know feminine pride, feminine dignity. She proved that she thought more highly of her feminine dignity than of the glamour of her social position. He also talks about her honor. And so it's so interesting. It made me wonder too, if, um, some of, some of these ideas about Vashti and Esther and, um, some of these things seem to be, um, of that time too. Cause he and Stanton are worlds apart. Cause he goes on to say about, um, you know, that obviously Christianity has liberated women from these strictures that Vasti was dealing with and everything's great now. (laughs) He feels totally differently than Stanton does about the state of women in the time he was writing. But his view of Vashti and Stanton's view are incredibly similar and it's all about dignity, honor, um, and Vashti's held up as as a paragon because she did not degrade herself by, um, she, she was courageous enough not to degrade herself before her husband, even if that meant disobeying his uh, command. It was fascinating to see how congruent their views were, even though they're opposite in basically every other way. And so I thought I found that really interesting. And that was that was one of the things that um, drew me to want to talk about Vashti tonight. Now I want to seek out uh, Victorian era commentaries on Vashti. That is fascinating. I know I just stumbled on it. And um, I was expecting, particularly on with Esther, and Kuiper's really interesting too, because he has this whole thing about um, bravery and courage. Um, he like he doesn't even he he's he's really weird about like his his take on JL is that this was dishonest and wrong, and for her to basically ambush Sisera, and that really, and he he genuinely seems to believe that if she that she should have challenged him openly, and that God would have somehow given her the victory. If she'd like challenged him in open combat or something, it's really, it's weird. Wow. I had no idea of that. That's, that's so interesting that there'd be that kind of congruence going on. Cause I wouldn't, I wouldn't have suspected that at all. Um, and it also makes me wonder about some of the other like biblical figures that you would expect, uh, Katie Stanton and the others to be recovering more like they, like we would see her as recovering Vashti but maybe she wasn't recovering Vashti so I would expect her to like try to recover yet Yael that you were mentioning um, but when the, when you get there in Judges it's just like eh, well she was violent that's a bad thing and <laughs> it's not like there's no celebration of her in contrast to, to Vashti um, so yeah. I wonder if that was just the like if that was fitting in with the time or if it was going against a tradition of celebration of Yael. I don't know. I don't know either. And I'm appreciating, I'm appreciating you very much right now. Cause I did not realize I was saying that name wrong. <laughs> and now I know, so I can say it correctly in Sunday school. Well, I, I'm, tr- I'm struggling to say it correctly myself. I'm not sure if I am. So, <laughs> <laughs> Katie, did you have anything else you wanted to say about uh, the notes on Esther or can we move on? That's all I've got on Esther. I, I would it'd be great to to see uh, what the next part is. So let's move on. So I chose First uh, Corinthians eleven, particularly First Corinthians eleven three to fifteen, um, and that's where we have the statement that the head of the woman is the man, and also the instructions that women must cover their heads while they're praying or prophesying. Um, and it's also the passage where we hear that oh, it's shameful if a man has long hair. Um, So I was interested in this passage because in the treatment of it, and you have two commentaries on it, one by uh, Katie Stanton and one by Louisa Southworth, um, but both of them are pretty much just like rejecting 
the text, not trying to recover it. And I think this is sort of typical of like the overall drift of the woman's Bible, even though we've pointed out some parts where they are celebrating like particular figures like Eve or Vashti. Um, but overall, it seems like they're kind of uh, not invested in that kind of project of recovery. Um, so uh, Katie Stanton's one page about one page of comments begins with her just to dismissing the directions to cover the head as she says very frivolous then and even more so now um, she says that this demand that women cover their heads in church is a requirement she says of canon law of vital significance showing the superiority the authority the headship of man and the humiliate the humility and subservience of woman uh, sh she says women should rebel, she says, against a custom based on the supposition of their heaven-ordained subjection. Um, and then again, it's another point where she gets like very snarky. Uh, she points out very briefly that paintings of Jesus or of the Trinity always show Jesus with long curling hair. And she leaves it to the reader to see the contradiction with the biblical injunction against long hair and men. Um, so that's, <laughs> I, I like uh, that aside on her part. Um, and then we have Louisa South, uh, Southworth's comments, which are just over a page long, and they perhaps show a little bit more interest than Katie Stanton does in a kind of project of recovery. So um, she points out how Paul has been used against women. Um, she says it's important to remember the context that it was considered acceptable for people to write letters under another person's name. So maybe a lot of the, the New Testament epistles might be like that rather than actually being from Paul. And then she presents an argument that could be used even if you did accept that Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians. She says that Paul is taking this command from a Jewish legend, not from God. So Southworth says that this is a legend associated with Genesis 6, when, if you, you remember, Genesis 6, the sons of God go to the daughters of men and have children by them. Um, the story being that uh, the way this happened was that angels would grab women by the hair, and that's why it's important to cover the head, because of the angels. And South, um, Southworth concludes that this command is coming from an absurd old myth, and so we don't have to follow it. Um, so I think that even though she doesn't explicitly say so, Southworth's comments here leave room for kind of privileging those parts of Paul that aren't um, indebted to these absurd Jewish teachings um, over against those that are um, more truly inspired and more truly Christian. Um, and this kind of division of Paul into like Jewish and Christian parts and rejecting the Jewish parts is in line with a strand of anti-Judaic Christian supersessionism that was pretty prevalent in the feminist treatments at this time. So this would be like... I'm, con I'm glad you're going to talk about that. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I was probably more shocked than I should have been at, at how much like, ew, Jews are terrible yeah. that there was in this book. No, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it's something that, I mean you can still see going on in feminist criticism today sometimes like uh, so say contrasting these horribly the horribly restrictive purity codes with all the liberation of Christianity it's a kind of similar trend that we have um, and it's interesting in the woman's Bible that actually Katie Stanton in contrast to some of the other commentators really tries to avoid this kind of thing um, she she ten generally tends to present, both Judaism and Christianity as equally at fault in their treatment of women. 
Um, and if you want to read more about this, there's an article called A Jewish Reading of the Woman's Bible from 2011 by Claudia Setzer that talks about this. One thing Setzer points out is that in an uh, 1885 National Women's Suffrage Association meeting, Katie Stanton tried to put forward this set of resolutions that would blame Christianity equally with other religions for the treatment of women. But the, the committee, like, revised the resolutions to, to give them this strong anti-Judaic stance. Um, and she was really kind of dismayed by this, Katie Stanton was, and in her autobiography she said that this was handing over to the Jews what I had laid at the door of the Christians. Um, so yeah, I'm just mentioning wow. this again, because like this tendency towards this Christian triumphalism is something that it's still, it's very easy to fall into. I mean, something I have to guard against for myself and, and feminist, Christian feminist approaches to the Bible. Um, so it's something that I think like Katie Stanton has to teach these later feminists us now, <laughs> even if she didn't um, really keep all of the commentary she edited entirely away from these kind of interpretations like uh, like uh, Southworth a little bit tending toward here. Um, and the, yeah. I think that's good too, though, right? I mean, I, I enjoy the fact that this book is written by committee, not to any way endorse anti-Semitism, but um, the, it's clear that you have different voices here. Like if you, if you read a hundred pages at a time, um, it doesn't feel like it's all commented on by the same person and I think that spirit of committee writing um, trying to all grapple with with similar issues and similar texts um, is that there's a, a real feminist spirit about that yeah and I, I think uh, when I was reading the background of this she actually wanted to end up with more of this than it <laughs> than she ended up with with her commentators but you get a real feeling of that in the appendix where you have all of the letters from people who are answering the question of like have teachings of the Bible advanced emancipation of women um, and have they dignified or degraded the mothers of the race and you get like so many different answers there so um, I, I do like the variety yeah Oh, and, and this first Corinthians uh, commentary, there was another thing I wanted to quickly mention, which was, um, again, the way that I see these interpretations not kind of latching on to what you would expect them to in terms of trying to find ways in which the text would empower women. Like, there's no attempt here, for instance, to argue that Paul shows men and women as interdependent, which... Um, you would think it, you might be able to with, uh, say, First Corinthians uh, 11, 11, um, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man and the Lord. So like taking that kind of verse, something like a more recent uh, commentary, the InterVarsity Press Women's Bible Commentary in 2002, which has a, it's a very different purpose than Katie Stanton, but at this point is able to treat this text as like, fairly straightforward promoting an interdependency between uh, men and women. Um, there's also no discussion here from uh, Katie Stanton or Southworth about like the idea that these instructions about how women are to pray and prophesy in church means that women are praying and prophesying in church and not being silent like they're told to do in 1 Corinthians 14, which you would think yeah. they would, you know, would talk about, yeah. but they don't. <laughs> I noticed that. Like, they throw a lot of shade at Paul, which, I mean... You know, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but they but they don't mention that. I I was shocked by that. 
I, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just such a, like, a big thing in, in like, current debates about uh, First Corinthians. Like, there's a lot of people now who are, argue about, like, what exousia, this word of meaning authority on the woman's head, um, means in this passage. Like, some have even said it's a symbol of, like, a veil that would be a symbol of a woman's authority over the others in the congregation as she's prophesying in some kind of ritual role. So sort of, like, turning it completely on its head, which I don't completely buy, but it's, you know, an interesting way to go. <laughs> um, but there's nothing here about, like, trying to make the text say something good about women. And I think that this is actually in line with Katie's Katie Stanton's um, description of the project's aim that we have in the introduction, where she says, with the commentary, at least, she's concerned only with the plain English and not with, she says, whatever the Bible may be made to do in Hebrew or Greek. So she's most concerned with like how this supposedly plain English of the Bible has caused actual harm to women and um, and, and, and this concern doesn't necessarily have to make the Bible be supportive of women because she's showing it how it's hurt women. Um, and in this approach, she reminds me a lot of like the approach of um, her fellow abolitionist, William Lloyd Garrison, who had like this similar approach to the Bible and saying the Bible, you know, actually does support slavery. That's very bad. So let's, you know, forget that and just, you know, not support slavery and not follow the Bible in that. Um, there was such, you know, division over biblical interpretation in relation to abolition. I think that would be like a really interesting thing to look at sometime in an episode, like looking at, at how these approaches to biblical interpretation that arose in relation to abolition would influence later feminist and queer approaches. Um, That's a really yeah. interesting idea. Yeah, and, and it's interesting too, um, this wasn't always Katie Stanton's like main approach to the Bible. If you go back to like 1860, she did an abolitionist treatment of the Ten Commandments that treated the Bible as authoritative and uh, liberatory and as, you know, this resource to be used and in, in work for abolition rather than um, following Garrison's approach at that point. So it's maybe a shift in her work or maybe she's being strategic at different points. I don't know. It's, it's really interesting to, to think about how, um, how these interpretations are influenced by the, the cultures that, that give birth to them. Yeah. Did you guys have any, um, thoughts on this, uh, section on first Corinthians? I, I think you've, you've covered, uh, more than what I had to say. Me too. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't think of anything else that, um, but other than just, I think you're right. It is, it is interesting, the two different voices that are happening in that commentary. Um, and I think that you're right about, um, kind of how they're each taking a different take. And I, and I was thinking when you said it earlier, Victoria, that I, you know, about loving the idea of this being done by committee. And I, I think that that is it's so valuable, particularly because if, if one of the aims is to, um, to kind of correct um, some some damage done in the past as they were seeing it. And I don't think this is, I mean, this is not, you know, usually editions of the Bible are done by committee. But just thinking about general theology and things like that, so often, um, you know, there might be a man's name, you know, or it might be, I feel like um, kind of men working in theology, it tends to be 
more monolithic, um, more about the single person, more kind of ruggedly individualistic, whatever you want to call it. Um, but the idea of working in community um, to, to do commentary, I think, is um, is a is just a, a way of, of differentiating themselves besides the ideas that the actual method even is differentiating themselves. And I, I found that really, really wonderful. Of course, we should not neglect an opportunity to say that though there are multiple voices um, in this interpretation, they are primarily well-to-do white women um, that shouldn't go on set. Sure. Definitely. Yeah. But, but yes, the the committee thing is is um is quite liberating. I think even just seeing the list of of ten or twelve names on a page I, was a powerful experience for me. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because I didn't think about it till now. But you were right to uh, just to put that caveat about how these women still have very much in common with each other. Um, at one place, I noticed it was one place where Stanton was talking about how she said something like the darkest page of history is the injustice done to women. And I know, and I mean, she's, she's trying to make a point, but um, I, I immediately was started to think of, well, hold on, because I was immediately thinking about all the connections between their movement and the abolitionist movement and thinking about. Well, and how, she's an abolitionist like and, that. Yeah. And so that you, <laughs> yeah. That you would that you would say that after having spent so much time trying to to address these injustices that were done via slavery to men and women is just very interesting. Um, and I don't you know, it seems such a strong statement to make. And I immediately thought, well, OK, but, you know, what about? Uh, yeah. So it, it was it was interesting to, to kind of that that kind of made me pull me back out and thought about her perspective and who she is and who these other women are. And, you know, yeah, that it's it's still. Um, very much coming from her, uh, I guess, surroundings, environment, whatever you might say. For sure. Yeah. Okay. We're, uh, this has been a great conversation, um, but we're running uh, close to the end of our hour. So let's go to our third and final segment of every episode, the passing on segment where we recommend uh, a text that we think you should check out. Marie, you go first. Thanks. Okay, so since we're looking at this Bible commentary, I thought I'd go ahead and recommend another commentary, the Queer Bible Commentary, which is from 2006. It's edited by Darren Guest, Robert E. Goss, Mona West, and Thomas Bohash. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Um, and this this commentary has a an entry by one contributor for each book of the Bible or, well, I mean, some books are combined together, like all the minor prophets are treated together and the two part books are together, but it covers the whole Bible basically. Um, and it offers queer commentary on the text. But like with the different voices that we see in the women's Bible, um, there's not like a consensus on what queer commentary on the text means. <laughs> there's so many different approaches and that's something I love about it. Um, there's approaches from, that range from like prioritizing, really getting into the, the details of the historical context to, on the other hand, like more highly individualistic approaches along the lines of uh, cruising the scriptures, to use uh, Tim Cox's term for that, for that approach. Um, and there's a like a range of commenta commentators as well from uh, you have the best known names in academic queer theology um, and you also have uh, pastors working 
day to day in the church. So there's a lot of variety and a lot of insight. Um, it's a really interesting commentary. Thanks, Marie. I'll have to uh, I'll have to give that a look. Katie, what do you have for us? So um, I'm going to recommend an article in in reading Stanton um, and Chandler on Esther and just thinking through a lot of stuff about Queen Esther this week. I was actually really interested to see um, an article on Christianity Today, which was actually from February, I think. But um, it kind of it, it's connecting Queen Esther to current events. So the title of this ed- article is um, "quote Queen Esther inspired me to speak up." says Nasser victim. Um, one of the young women who was victimized by Larry Nasser um, throughout his time um, as a doctor for gymnasts um, was, uh, has, has kind of cited Esther as an example of, um, you know, one way that she gained the courage to stand against her abuser. And, um, and, and it also details some of the ways that her church supported her. And I thought it was a really wonderful um, kind of interesting connection between a Bible woman and um, something that's been a huge story lately. And that's um, on Christianity Today. And it was written by Deborah Pardo Kaplan. That's um, about Larissa Boyce's speech, isn't it? She She's the one who said, um, I'm speaking up because oftentimes the church tells um, women, she said essentially to forgive their abusers too much. She, mm-hmm. um, e- even though, I think it's the same woman. It is, yeah. Um, it's it's Larissa Boyce. Yeah, that's who it's about. I I appreciated her um, when I was reading her testimony. I appreciated her courage to to criticize the church, even as she remains a part of it and says it's important to her. Yeah, me too. I I, I it's that was so needed, and um, she and again, you know, it's just she's showing courage over and over. Right. I mean, you know, she's coming forward, but also she's standing up to the community that she's a part of. And it's, it's a really, really awesome, awesome. uh, She's an awesome person. I think I can't, I can't say enough about it. Thanks for sharing that with us, Katie. My recommendation is uh, another book of and about biblical interpretation um, by my personal favorite feminist theologian, Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza. Um, And it's her fairly famous book, uh, but she said, Feminist Principles for Biblical Interpretation. And um, it's it's one of the first uh, books of feminist theology that I ever dug into. And um, reading the woman's Bible for this episode made me think of it because um, their principles for interpretation have a lot in common in terms of the emphasis on um, historical and social contexts and and what those things give to uh, traditional or or oft-cited interpretations. Um, My favorite thing that Fiorenza said and says often is uh, all interpretation is a political act so that you sort of can't um, can't separate uh, personal politics and and hermeneutics at least completely sort of the the personal is is political of of hermeneutic principles so that's my recommendation Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza's but she said And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We want to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to drop us a line and say hello, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page, 
check out the show notes from this or other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Elizabeth Brimner is our intern. For Katie Grubbs and Marie Hawes, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in in two weeks when regular panelist Lori Norris and two new guests will discuss black feminism and Beyonce's album Lemonade. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. <laughs>